All right, welcome back, students, to Lecture 6 on Introduction to Homer's Odyssey, Books 8, and only the very first couple pages of Book 9. So, Part 1 there, slides 102 to 118. All right, let's pick up where we left off. So, Odysseus, he's on Scoria. Remember, it was difficult for him to get there. It took him about 20 days to get there, 18 days on a raft, two days in the water. Met a sea goddess named Eno who gave him a veil to get there. Got to Scoria, could not get on Scoria had to pray to a river, who actually stopped his current, let Odysseus come out on to, uh, uh, through its waves onto the earth. Then he had to make a decision. Where did he sleep? He sleep, slept under two interwoven olive trees that we said might be an allegory for what a human is, both uh, civil and barbaric, all in one. Something to keep in mind as we see these new monsters that Odysseus is going to talk about in his story to the Phaeacians, uh, books 9 to 13. We then met Nausicaa, she invited us to her home. Odysseus then came there with the help of Odysseus, or excuse me, with the help of Athena in the mist. He supplicated Arate, met Alcanellus, and now he is receiving hospitality from the Phaeacians. And so, Athena goes throughout the city as a herald of Alcanellus to summon the Phaeacians to assembly. This will be a much more successful assembly than the one that Telemachus recently held in Ithaca. Athena then makes Odysseus, as we would expect, taller and thicker and curlier because he's about to present himself in public and think about it. Don't you dress better before you give a public presentation, even if it's just to your class or if you go to an award ceremony? Do you try to look your best when people are going to look at you? The answer is generally yes, yes. And so Alcanoas does precisely what it is he said he would do for Odysseus and precisely what Odysseus needs him to do. Remember, the whole reason that Odysseus is here on Scoria and talking to the five cans is to get their ships so that he can get home. He has his goal very much in mind the entire time he's there, even though there are a lot of things that could distract him. Nausicaa, very young, beautiful woman. Perhaps he could stay there, start a new life. Not what he wants to do. And then, of course, there are entertainments that he's going to be shown. Great stories that he'll be told, sort of like a Netflix binge instead of doing homework. And then also athletic contests. Uh, and so these are things that can distract somebody from their goals at times, when they are done at improper times. There are, of course, proper times for athletics and stories. That said, as Alcanoas orders the ship for Odysseus, he says, but let's, let's have that ship come tomorrow. We have this incredible singer, and this singer is sometimes called a, fig, a figura homeris, a figure of Homer. Homer was, we think, a blind poet. Some people suggest that he was actually a collection of poets who worked together over time to form this poem. Possibly true. But the idea of Homer is that he was blind, and so he could see a truth that was beyond what other humans could see. Well, this poet, who's going to sing a song within Homer's poem, is also blind. And something interesting about it is that after he sings, uh, he will receive the tenderloin, which is the finest piece of meat, from, um, from Odysseus, suggesting that the storyteller is the person who receives the most reward, who is the most important person, which is also interesting, because I think I told you that this song was originally sung, and generally sung in around three days. Well, this scene in Book 8 would be around the time, we think, when the first day would end. And so the singer, who would actually be singing this song, would sing a song about a singer singing a song, who would then receive a very fine piece of meat, thus expecting to receive what from his audience? Perhaps himself, a very fine piece of meat. And so we think that's a very clever thing. So let's see what this Demodocus has got. Let's see how he earns that tenderloin. First, he sings of a conflict between Odysseus and Achilleus, which made Agamemnon 
Happy, very interesting. So this is the first of three songs that he will sing, and we do not have any evidence from any ancient text, philosophy, literature, drama, uh, poetry, uh, suggesting what this conflict was about. We do not know what Odysseus and Achilleus got into. We only know the information provided from the Odyssey, and the information is this. There was a prophecy that Agamemnon had heard that when the best of the Achaeans came into conflict, he was sure to win Troy. Something interesting about that. Insofar as Odysseus is being sung of, this means that his kleos has spread throughout the world, which is a good thing. And insofar as Odysseus is identified as one of the best of the Achaeans in song, it now shows us that Odysseus is now famed for being uh, uh, what, exact, what Achilleus and both Agamemnon wished to be, which is the best of the Achaeans. And so something interesting is that Odysseus... Uh, begins to cry here. He will actually begin to cry after the third story, too, which is about Troy. Now, a lot of people think that's because he feels sad about thinking back to Troy. Sort of like Menelaus and Telemachus and Pesistratos and Helen when they were indulging in sadness. Now, that's not the only way to interpret this. The other reason he might be crying is out of happiness. You say, happiness? Why are you cry crying out of happiness? And I say, precisely because even though he has been gone, for seven years from the world with Calypso, people remember his story. People know him. He's still famous. He's gotten possibly exactly what he wants and what many warriors would want. To have his story remembered by those uh, who come after him even when he is not there. And so he's literally at this point a living legend. Which is about the best thing you can imagine being. Especially at this time. In any case, we hear this story. Alcanoas then says, okay, well, this guy seems to be crying, so I'm not going to bother him too much. Let's have some games. And so, they call for boxing, wrestling, leaping, running, things we still like watching. People still like watching amateur wrestling. Some people like watching professional wrestling. It's quite dramatic. People still watch boxing. They'll pay tons of money to watch it on HBO or on, what is the name of that service that you have to pay for? Pay-per-view. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. We still like to watch people leap. We still like to people watch people run, whether it be in the Olympics, whether it be in basketball, whether it be in football. Very interesting stuff. We like to see people tell stories who are excellent at telling stories. We like to watch people do incredible things with their bodies that we cannot do. And this is something that Odysseus gets to witness. Now, one thing about this, as interesting as all of this is, and as wonderful as all of this entertainment is, does Odysseus want to be there? No. These guys are great entertainers, and they're doing all the right things except for one thing. They are not honoring the fact that Odysseus wants to go. It's almost as if he is being held captive to their entertainment at this time. It's almost like even when you give the right thing at the wrong time, you're doing the wrong thing. Hmm, interesting. In any case, the games begin, and they begin with the running. And you don't really need to know this, but I just lay this out for you just so you can know some technical details. First, we see running. Clitonius, son of Alcanoas, easily win. So Alcanoas has got some fine sons. They run very well. Something interesting about this is that in the Aeneid, we will see uh, games, and we will see a running contest, and we'll actually see one guy slip on blood and then trip up the guy who's right behind him so that his friend can win the race. And then later, sadly, we'll see the guy who tripped up one guy and the friend who wins the race go out into the night like Odysseus and Ulysses, but they're not, or excuse me, Odysseus and Diomedes, but they're not going to have the same result as Odysseus and Diomedes. In fact, one of them is going to put a metal helmet on his head that will then sh have the moon shine off it, which will then hit the guards to his presence, and then they'll both end up dying. Which is a pretty interesting thing. In any case, then we see the wrestling. 
This guy Urialis wins. Keep your eye on this guy Urialis. He's going to talk to Odysseus and he's going to make a couple blunders in terms of manners and Zinnia. Though he's not going to know he does. So uh, I think you're going to uh, really uh, commiserate or empathize with him. He's going to think he's doing the right thing, but he's going to do the wrong thing. And then he's going to be blamed for it and have to make up for it. Does that sound like uh, every day of your lives? Perhaps so. Perhaps so. And in case the jumping and... MPLO swims. I don't know whether it's a high jump or a long jump. I suspect it's a long jump just because long jumps are easier to measure. You need fewer things to measure a long jump. Just some mud, really. Um, in any case, there's also the discus. Discus is very cool. I don't know if you've ever seen a discus be hurled. Uh, this won't show up on the recording, but basically you kind of like twist and twist, and then you go whoosh. It's a very beautiful motion, I think. Um, and people can throw the discus really, 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 really really far. In any case, now, a couple of the victors here, they're sort of inflated with victory. They're feeling, they're, they're riding on cloud nine. They're riding high, we would say. When you ride high, that means it's easy for you to trip because you can't see the ground beneath you. Laodamus and Euryalus. We know that Laodamus is the son of Alcanoas, the one who gave up his seat for Odysseus. And also, if we look back here, we uh, say, did he not win something? I thought he won something. In any case, uh, we see his buddy is Euryalus. Remember, Euryalus just won the wrestling, so he's sort of a stud. Something you might not know about Odysseus. Odysseus is an excellent, excellent wrestler. And in fact, um, I'm forgetting the name of who it was that he defeated, but he very famously defeated another excellent wrestler. I think he even killed him. Very similar to Heracles, who was known to be an incredible wrestler who would actually kill people when he defeated them. And You might think, how do you kill somebody when you're wrestling? It's like, Think about it. You pick them up off the ground, and then you slam them on their shoulder or head. It's not really the hardest thing in the world to do. In fact, in wrestling competitions, that's called a five-point throw, but you are required not to harm your opponent because you very much can. And, you know, if you happen to be on a hard substance like stone and you slam someone's head into the ground five or six feet up, well, that, that impact can be fatal. In any case, wrestling's no joke. Laodamus and Euryalus... Try to get Odysseus to participate. Now remember, he's not really into this. He wants to go home. And he's been dealing with very serious matters, trying to get to Scria over 20 days. Uh, and then he's been also uh, trying to get home for 10 years. He's, he's very serious-minded. He's not in a great mood, you might say. Sort of like all of us in the morning. Well, Euryalus says, why don't, why don't you come play with us? And Odysseus tries to dismiss him. He says, I, I have bigger concerns than that. And well, the young people, they don't really like hearing that. They, they feel a little insulted by him speaking to them in that way. And so they, they kind of take offense to it. And Euryalus then steps in and mocks Odysseus. And he says, you look like one not well-versed in contests. And boom! He says, you look like no athlete. And you're like, okay, well, whatever. No, not whatever. Athletic contests at the time of ancient... Uh, the ancient Achaeans and Argives, because there were no Greeks at this time, were preparation for war. To some extent, they still are. In fact, if you watch Monday Night Football, why don't you count up how many advertisements there are for, say, the Navy or for the Army? I think you will find that there are not zero almost every time. There has always been a strong connection between athletics and the military. Uh, both are ordered, both involve physical prowess, and both involve teamwork. Of course, and of course, defeating a, uh, a combatant, sometimes called an enemy. In any case, when Euryalus says that Odysseus doesn't look like an athlete, he's saying you don't look like a warrior. I mean, just think about hearing that as Odysseus. 
Not only are you a successful warrior who has bled in Troy, you are the reason that the entire people, the Trojans, fell. You are not going to hear that from some young, untested man at all. And not only that, he is actually an excellent athlete. Though he's been on the sea, so his legs aren't very strong right now, so he says he can't run very much. In any case, Odysseus says, you know, there are two sorts of people in this world, you know? There are beautiful people, and there are smart people. And sometimes those beautiful people are totally empty-headed. Makes me think of Paris quite a bit. And he says, you, Euryalus, strike me as one of those people who looks like they should be saying intelligent things, but doesn't have anything intelligent to say. He says, you're dumb. Because you can't see what's right in front of you. Which is an incredible warrior, one of the greatest warriors alive, who has even been sung about by your own singer. And so Euryalus, uh, like many young people, does not quite see the entire picture. And does not quite see that, even though he was uh, not intending to be rude, at first at least, that he did come off a little bit rude. And then he got, uh, you might say he received his licks from Odysseus. But then Odysseus has to prove that he is some sort of warrior. So then he picks up a discus that's heavier than the ones that the people competed with. Doesn't even take off his cloak. It's like a kung fu master who's like wearing a suit and you're like all dressed up trying to beat him. He's just like, woof, 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 woof. Neo from the Matrix, woof, woof, Gets him. Yeah, exactly. And so he picks up the discus. He's like, you nerds, I don't Couldn't see where it fell. Did it go far? I can see all of yours. But where's mine? And so, actually, Athena, in disguise, has to go measure his distance. And she says, any person could see that this was the winning discus. So, obviously, who's right? Odysseus or Euryalus calling him no athlete? Odysseus has shown through actions, not simply words, that he is certainly an athlete. And we, of course, know that he is certainly a warrior. And we will have opportunity later on, books 13 to 24, 22 in particular, to see Odysseus show his stuff as a warrior. In fact, um, something interesting about the suitors, and just how much stronger Odysseus is than the men who exist now, and remember that Achilles was even stronger than Odysseus, which Odysseus even mentions. Recall him saying, I am greater in council, but you're greater in battle. Well, those uh, suitors, uh, there will be a test of strength, and many of them will find that uh, they are far, far, far lesser than Odysseus. They will not even be able to do the simplest thing that he could do. In any case, Odysseus then goes on to claim and boast, I could win every single one of these contests right now, if I wanted to, but you are my host, and I have other things on my mind. I did not want to engage in this. There is one, uh, there is one contest, however, that he would not have won, and he says, uh, the running, because he's been at the sea, and his legs have lost muscle mass and are out of condition, so... It's sort of like when, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, an astronaut come back to Earth after being in space, but they usually have to be carried out of their um, spacecraft, the, the pod that's left, because their legs have lost mass because they haven't had to support their own weight, and so their, uh, their muscles have atrophied, and so they become very weak. Which is why you want to live. That's why you lift, by the way. You get stronger. The more stress you put on your body, the stronger your body has to become. The less stress on it, well, the weaker it becomes. And we know that from space. In any case... He says he wants to go home, and he didn't come here to shame his host. And that, that, I think, is an interesting lesson. It's almost like what he's telling to us in this modern context is, if your friend invites you over to play Halo on Xbox, or whatever is the big game, what's the big shooting game right now that people play? Yes? 
Minecraft, well, Minecraft's not really competitive, but in any case, yeah, Minecraft. If your friend invites you over to play Minecraft, and they just made, like, I don't know, Hogwarts or something, it's taking them 70 hours, probably not the best idea to go then destroy his, his uh, Hogwarts in Minecraft. Or if you're playing Halo with him, maybe don't blow off his head 17 times, because then maybe he'll be unhappy that he invited you over. That's the idea. That's the idea here. Well... Alcanoas then sees what's happening. He apologizes for the young men. He's like, oh, man, these young men, sometimes they get it wrong. And uh, then he says, the fire cans, you know, we're not even really very good at boxing and wrestling, suggesting they're not really much in terms of fighters, and they're not much in terms of fighters. In fact, we know that they immigrated away from the Cyclopes, who you will soon find out are very much fighters, but are not very civil. Um, they like to do things like dance. And uh, there, there was an idea in the ancient Argive time, that if you were a male dancer, and it's funny, these days it's not necessarily true, but people will sort of still laugh. If I were to say a male ballerina to you, or a male cheerleader, perhaps you would have a different idea from a female ballerina, or a female cheerleader. Well, that is a very ancient, 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 I'm not going to say prejudice, but let's say idea, that if a man is, say, a dancer, he's not considered as much of a warrior. He's more of an artist. Uh, and that was certainly honored by the Viacans. In, in any case, the Viacans are great at dancing. They're great at running. They're great at seafaring. And they're great at feasting. These guys like to hang out. They like to have a good time. They have their own island by themselves. They never have to fight wars. They do the things that people that don't have to worry about wars do. Dance and feast. Well, it's sort of similar to, interestingly, the suitors. But very different in another way. And though, so he says, okay, okay, let's clear the air. Let's have Demodocus sing another song. And this song is going to be about a conflict much bigger than a young man accidentally insulting an older man. So let's hear this one. And this is a yellow figure uh, face painting of this. There are a lot of images of this tête-à-tête. Uh, -tête. That means a head-to-head -head in French. In any case, this is the second song. It is about Ares and Aphrodite. Ares and Aphrodite. Uh, cheating on poor Hephaestus. So, the idea was this. Even though we know in the Iliad that Hephaestus is now married to a grace named Charis, and he has his workshop with his golden tripods and his golden androids helping him out. You remember that from Book 18 when he was making the armor of Achilles and his shield. Well, he used to be married to Aphrodite. Well, that's a big problem because you know that Aphrodite likes to cheat because even in the Iliad, we saw one of her illegitimate sons named Aeneas, who she had with a mortal man named Anchises. So if you are married to uh, Aphrodite, she will make a cuckold of you. And sadly, in this case, the reason that she chooses Ares over Hephaestus is because Hephaestus has that limp. And Ares is dashing and beautiful. And so she chooses her handsome brother over her less handsome brother and husband. So what happens? Ares and Aphrodite have been cheating for some time. Apollo, who is the sun god and sees all things in the present and in the future, sees what's happening, does not feel right about it, goes down to tell Hephaestus, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, bro. Your, your girl is cheating on you. Your wife is very much cheating on you with Ares. This infuriates Hephaestus. But he can't come outright and accuse his wife. He needs to entrap her. And in fact, to this day, people still do that sort of thing. There are applications you can download for your phone to record conversations on it, uh, which people do in legal disputes. So always be careful what you write to people and what you say, because it can be recorded uh, and then used against you. Um, and this sort of thing does happen. In any case, this may be similar 
in an ancient way to that. Hephaestus comes up with an idea. He says, okay, I'm going to create an invisible web. I'm going to put it all over my bedroom so that when Ares comes to lay with Aphrodite, they get caught in flagrante delicto. That means caught red-handed, caught in the act, and they will not be able to move. <laughs> and it works. It works spectacularly. So Hephaestus comes out the next day. He pretends to leave and go to Lemnos. Ares then sneaks on in, and then they lay in the bed, and they get caught. Totally, totally caught. Just imagine how embarrassing that would be to be caught and not be able to move. Don't imagine too hard. In any case, Hephaestus then returns and is enraged. He sees exactly what he did not want to see, but exactly also what he expected to see. And he calls down all the Olympian gods to see this. I just want you to imagine how mortified Aphrodite would be to have her sisters and mother come down and see her caught in this extremely immoral action. Hera, Athena, Artemis, all... <laughs> but the lady goddesses, they have too much shame. They do not want to see this. They understand what happens between gods. They are not going to come down. However, three of the male gods do come down. And remember, this is a story that would have just been told to the men playing the, the athletic contest, so it's considered sort of like a guy's story. In any case, we tell it to everybody now. Hermes, who is exactly who you would want to come down in a situation like this because he cracks the best jokes. Apollo, who's sort of interesting because he's not seen as a very funny god. He's actually seen as a very unfunny god, but he will tell a funny joke here, oddly. And then Poseidon. They come down and they see what's going on. And they're all watching. Open mouth. Most interesting thing. Apollo then asks Hermes a question. He's like, let me make sure I don't have this right here. Good. I got a question for you, Hermes. He gives him this look like this, and you're like, oh man, this is a good question. He's like, if you knew, if you knew you would get caught like this, would you still lay with Aphrodite? Hermes, looking wickedly, certainly, at Apollo's like, would I, not only would I do it uh, if I would be caught in these webs, but if you were to add three times as many fastenings, I would still do it. And then they're all laughing. They're like, ah, 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 all churlishly. That's a good word for that. Poseidon, however, over on the side is talking to Hephaestus, who is extremely upset. He's like, I demand restitution for this. I paid a bride price for this woman. Probably calls her some terrible words. And uh, <clears throat> then... Besides, it's okay, okay, I get that, I get that. You need to calm down, though. We need Ares and Aphrodite. They're Olympians. Love and war. They need to be free. You need to let them go. Um, Ares will pay the bride price back. Hephaestus says, if he betrayed me in this way, how can I trust that he'll pay me? I don't trust him at all. And so it's like, okay, 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 okay. Poseidon says, if Ares does not pay, I will pay. And very interesting. If you want to look at this as an allegory, remember, Hephaestus is the god that makes things. Ares is the god that breaks things. And even in this situation, you see Ares breaking something, a relationship, a marriage. And remember that marriage is one of the themes of this text, and that a good marriage is considered great, like Alcanoas and Arete, and that a bad marriage, like Clytemnestra and Agamemnon or Menelaus and Helen, is considered something that can destroy you. And so even in this very funny story, you see a much deeper meaning down there, and you see that there's always a conflict between Hephaestus, he who makes, 
and Aries, he who breaks. And I think also you see that it is much easier to break something, to destroy something, than to make something. I think all humans, especially those that relate to others, understand that that is true. We walk on thin ice at all times, so we must tread carefully. In any case, that was the second song. Leonimus and then Helios then dance in front of us. They are apparently very good ballerinas, dancers, dancing with the stars sort of individuals. And Odysseus says, man, yeah, they really do dance very well. I think they're described as dancing like the stars, like the heavens. In fact, a, a dance that is actually modeled after the movements of the heavens is the waltz. I don't know if you've ever waltzed before, but you spin with your partner while also circling the room like a planetary sphere, which uh, rotates while also um, circling the sun. And so just like the earth is always rotating while circling the sun, so do you do when you waltz, which I think is very much beautiful. In any case, Alcanoas calls for more uh, uh, hospitality. I've given some stories. I've given some seats. I've given some clothes. I've suggested that uh, Odysseus possibly could even marry my daughter. And, I, well, let's give him some gifts now. The 12 kings underneath Alcanoas, I guess they're like dukes in this case, plus Alcanoas the 13th will give a robe, a tunic, and a talent of gold to Odysseus. And I just want you to uh, uh, sort of think about just how much wealth they're giving. Uh, remember, a talent of gold is 50 to 70 pounds of gold. Like a nice golden ring is worth a lot to us now. Imagine 50 to 70 pounds of gold. You could make, I don't know, 10,000 rings out of just one of those? Well, he's getting 13, which means uh, well over 700 pounds of gold, almost 1,000. Um, which means that Odysseus is now going to be richer than he would have been if he had made it back to Ithaca straight from Troy. Sort of like Menelaus. Here's another allegorical way to understand that. Even though he doesn't get home immediately, he's enriched by the experiences he has that he would not otherwise. It's almost like when you go through things, you acquire more information, more, more facts, and more, uh, more things for stories. And it's almost like the most valuable thing you can store is not some material good, but the stories from the things that you have endured. Perhaps that's part of this interpretation. In any case, Euryalus then feels bad, offers a sword as an apology for Odysseus. I think that's very symbolic. It means he got nicked by Odysseus's wit. In any case, Odysseus forgives him, and then Alcanoas gives him a golden cup. Arte then brings Odysseus a chest and tells him to secure it with a knot so that while he sleeps during his journey, none break it. I think that's an interesting reference because we'll talk about a... Uh, bag, a very special bag that had something very special in it uh, for Odysseus that gets opened by his men precisely because it was not uh, well tied or locked. Uh, we'll talk about that on Thursday. In any case, uh, Odysseus ties a knot that he was taught by one of the goddesses he spent a year with named Circe. The other goddess was Calypso. He spent seven years with her. Okay. Now we have a little interim. Uh, uh, an interlude, in fact. Nausicaa appears after this second story, after the gifts have been given. And I like this picture of her just sort of leaning against the wall, kind of there to be seen, but to act like she's not trying to be seen. Uh, very, uh, 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 very feminine sort of expression, you might say. In any case, he's, she says, stranger, now that she realizes that he's definitely going to go, having received these gifts and having had the ship ordered for him, maybe you'll remember me and what I did for you. And he actually says, he says that I will never forget and I will pray to you as if you were a god. Remember that she was, she was first likened to uh, 
Artemis, interestingly enough, the virginal goddess, uh, who he was definitely not going to try and abduct because he was not being a pirate, at least in that moment. In any case, he then goes up to Demodocus, Odysseus does, and he says, above all mortals I prize you, which might be a reference to Homer and him wanting his meat for that night while he tells this story himself. And then Odysseus uh, gives him the pork tenderloin. I think it's pork tenderloin. In any case, Odysseus asks Demodocus to say a third song. So he's going to test his clairs. See, just how much of his deeds are known. This is the most famous thing that Odysseus has done. And remember, he still has not revealed himself to the Phaeacians. So as Demodocus sings about him, the Phaeacians aren't sitting around saying, why are you asking him to sing songs about you? They're like, oh, these are good songs. We're glad that you know about them. In any case, he says, do you know this third song? It's about this character, Epeus. He was the carpenter who made the wooden horse called the Trojan horse. And, well, Demodocus says yes, and this is his third story. And this is very close to the end of today. And so, you know these facts. But I will give them to you again. Demodocus sings, there was a wooden horse in front of Troy. And the Trojans thought three ideas. What to do with this giant wooden horse that has replaced the Achaean army that had been accosting them for ten years. Let's cut it open. Great idea. Let's push it off a cliff. Also great idea. Oh, something funny. I almost put the picture here that uh, said attachment on it. And uh, there was an underscore that said open the attachment. Because, of course, viruses that will infect your computer are now called Trojans. After the Trojan horse, by the way. Things that sneak in without your knowing and then destroy you. In any case... Third option, leave it to blandish. That means respect the gods. Well, they choose that option. They chose that option, and the rest is history. Then we see Odysseus in song. Odysseus with Menelaus going to find Aphobos. They cut off his nose, his ears, his private parts, his hands, his feet. They totally dismember him. Again, just to mention another allegory, since we've been talking about them today, you might say that the physical dismembering of Aphobos uh, represents the physical dismembering of the country of Troy. That just as uh, he is torn apart, so is their civilization torn apart by Odysseus and Menelaus and the rest of the Achaeans. In any case, they, gra they get Helen, and that's where they endured the grimmest fighting, because essentially Helen is the gold, the Trojans are the dragon, and they are trying to keep her from being taken by the Achaeans. That dragon, however, like Smaug from the Hobbit, does fall. And Odysseus weeps during this tale. Again, I told you that two ways to interpret this is he's sad about the times that have passed and is feeling nostalgic, but also perhaps he is actually happy because the greatest deed he has ever done, which is being involved in the sacking of Troy and also the creation of the Trojan horse, has been remembered and is told in story far and wide, indicating that he is a living legend, indicating that he's like a living immortal in a way. And... Are we still telling his story now? Indeed we are. Indeed we are. In any case, Alcanoas sees this. He sees this weeping Odysseus. There are many pictures in art of Odysseus listening to Demodocus sing and weeping uh, violently into his, uh, into his tunic. And he says, be honest about where you are and where you're from. No man is altogether without a name. Uh, you could not have been born from some rock or some tree, he says. Though in mythology that occasionally sort of happens. It's probably not true of Odysseus here. And then he shares a prophecy, a very interesting prophecy that he received from his father, the father that immigrated them from Hyperia, 
with the, uh, uh, the Cyclopes to their current uh, location, Scoria. Um, and this is the prophecy. And I think this will help to indicate to you just how excellent the Zinnia, or the hospitality of these Phaiakians, is. Because they will endure great risk to help somebody who will offer them absolutely no reward. It's almost like they are the most charitable or generous people you could imagine. One day, Poseidon, who is their ancient relative, they are related to Poseidon, uh, will cover the Phaiakian city with a mountain. That means squish it, potentially. For them offering safe conveyance home to a traveler. And then he will stun their ship on its return. So just because they help out somebody who needs help, they will be punished, even though they receive no reward. So why do they keep helping people out? Apparently, because they believe in the zinnia even more than their own health or their own happiness. And in fact, I ask this question here, could this prophecy be about Odysseus? I'll tell you a fact. Poseidon is angry at Odysseus. Poseidon will take exception to the Phaiakians helping him get home. The Phaiakians will help Odysseus get home. They will have a mountain potentially cover their island. And they will have a ship stunned and uh, rooted to the bottom of the sea. They do for Odysseus what they do at great risk themselves. And they suffer great consequences for helping him for absolutely no reward. They're sort of like the opposite of the suitors. Who constantly take, 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 but give nothing. Well, they give, give, give. And they take nothing from Odysseus. Very interesting uh, contrast. We would call that juxtaposition in um, literary circles. All right. Now, remember, Demonicus told three stories. The first one was about Achilles and Odysseus quarreling. We don't know anything more about it than that. This is the only place in literature that it exists. Then about Ares and Aphrodite cheating. That's an excellent story. Get a lot of laughs. Remember that story forever. Tell it at lunch. And then the story about the Trojan horse. You know that very well. Well, Odysseus finally reveals himself. He says he is the son of Laertes and king of Ithaca, and that he has been detained for many, many years by two goddesses. Circe, who was detained for one year. I'll tell you her story very, very soon. In fact, during books 9 through 13, Odysseus will be telling the story of his tales over the night, all night long to the Phaiakians. In fact, one of the beautiful things that Alkanos will say when in the middle of Odysseus breaking up his story is, to sleep all night is a bore. These nights are endless. And I think it's interesting because night is the time when we listen to stories and tell stories. That's when we watch TV. That's when we uh, watch movies. That's when we have the deepest conversations on instant messenger with our friends. It is the time for stories. We can see activities of the day are done. And you can't really do that much because it's night outside and you can't see that well, even though we do have lights these days. In any case, he's been detained by Circe for one year, Calypso by seven years. And he says, let me start from the beginning. And so we are only going to see the very, very beginning of his story today. So, two parts to it. Uh, okay. Right after sacking Troy, he goes immediately to one of their allies in Thrace, on a place called Ismaros, called the Kikones. Uh, the Sikones in most modern translations, but we have our very Greek translation here by Richmond Lattimore. In case, he's seeking more plunder. He's doing exactly what he's done. He, like Laodamus and Euryalus during the games, is flying high. After the victory at Troy, he thinks perhaps he's unstoppable, goes to fight a little bit more, and goes to sack their allies. And, in fact, they do. Now, Odysseus is still smart, and this will be a key theme throughout his story. He has a good idea, and his men have a bad idea that costs them their lives. Keep that in mind. Odysseus suggests, after they sack the Cacones, let's get out of here. Let's be light 
Footed and escaping. Light footed means you run, not heavy footed. I suppose the fastest. In any case, it says, let's get out of here. Well, the getting's good. Well, the men, they get drunk, and this is like an anti drug uh, text, too. We're going to see lotus eaters. We're going to see somebody die falling off a roof after drinking. We're going to see a guy get his eye poked out after drinking. Uh, you're going to see the suitors all get killed after drinking. Uh, it's like, ugh, whatever keeps you from thinking clearly can lead to your demise, which uh, we still have PSAs about that. In any case, his men have drunk wine. They are drunk. They do not listen. They want to stay the night. Well, that gives the Kokone's allies, who are more warlike, that means tougher and stronger than they are, time to form and to come and to attack Odysseus's people, uh, and they do. And they're very effective in their attack. In fact, they kill six men per Odysseus's ship, uh, or six men per ship of Odysseus. Odysseus has 12 ships. That means 72 men in total get killed just because they were slow to move, just because they were slothful. In any case, uh, Odysseus and the crew flee. Now, this is where the magic begins. And the people and the monsters and the gods that we see will get more and more magical, less and less human, as we go throughout books 9 to 13. After seeing the Kakones, there's a storm. It's sort of like when Dorothy goes through the tornado, and things are black and white, and her house moves up, and then it gets thrown down in a place of all colors. It's like she goes from the world of what's mundane and regular sort of a magical world. Well, on the way, Zeus sends a brutal storm which rips the sails of ships, two days resting on the mainland, and then ten days until Odysseus makes it to a place past Cathera called the Isle of the Lotus Eaters, off the map. Now these Lotus Eaters, if you look at these images, look like a sleepy bunch. They look like people who use a plant to make themselves tired. We think that the Lotus was a sort of opium. Opium is a terrible, terrible drug on which uh, morphine and heroin are based that are highly addictive, make people feel, uh, they, they, they affect your serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They, uh, they make you feel really good and warm. And so when you feel that way, you get really sleepy and tired. And then you get addicted to that feeling. And then what do you end up spending your life doing? Being sleepy and tired, which means you do what? Sleep, which means you do what? Nothing with yourself. That's the problem with these lotus eaters. They offer lotus to two of Odysseus's men. They take it. They don't eat bread. That's interesting too. They're not eaters of bread. Something you'll see in all ancient history and mythology is that normal people eat bread. They make bread. They, they, they make the harvest. It's an easy crop to, uh, to, uh, to uh, farm. In any case, the lotus eaters, they offer this sweet honey tasting lotus to the crew. Two of the men eat it and they forget their homecomings. They're like, what? Where am I? I don't know. Whatever, man. I'm just going to chill out here. Odysseus himself goes and forces the two men back. I love this picture. because He's actually grabbing them by the hair. Look at that. He's grabbing them by the hair. He's like, you need to come here right now. He's detoxing them. And in fact, he has to tie them up on the ship so they don't jump off the edge of the ship to uh, run. In any case, we'll see the Cyclopes on Thursday. We got just to where we were supposed to.